Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 6. Last week, I uh, began by reading all of chapter 6 under the vain hope that we would actually make it through chapter 6, but I knew that was a futile idea to begin with. Chapter 5 ended with a discussion about Adam and his sin and our sin and our being in Adam and what that meant. And it ended with the discussion that no matter how much we sin, God's grace is sufficient. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So chapter 6 began with the idea, well, if I sin more, I get more grace. Shouldn't I keep on sinning so that I will get more grace? I mean, let's face it. If sin is fun, I might as well keep doing it if I know all it's going to do is produce more grace on God's part toward me. And that is what chapter 6 is about. And we began with the question, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? The answer being, heck no. Well, that's a loose translation. Last week we discussed the fact that when Christ died, we died with him. Whereas we were a slave to sin, that's going to be today's lesson, we were in bondage to sin, when he died, we died with him and we died to sin. We no longer have to sin. We are no longer condemned to continually doing that which violates the word of God. Now, we had a brief discussion last week, and we'll have a bigger discussion next week. Does that mean that we stop sinning? Well, I don't know about you. Either A, I'm not a Christian, or B, we keep sinning. And that's next week's lesson where we talk about the things that I don't want to do, I do, and the things that I, you get the picture, right? So we talked last week about what it means when we're told that we died to sin. And we got down to, um, I don't know, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will not, will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And we had a brief discussion about this. This is kind of where we ended up. But I want to have a little bit more discussion, just to make sure we understand what it's saying. Let not sin reign in the members of your body. This is actually very simple to understand. This hand is a member of my body. This hand can do acts of unrighteousness, or this hand can do acts of righteousness. It's really as simple as that. You can go through every member of your body thinking about how that member can be used for unrighteousness or that member can be used for righteousness. The scripture goes at great lengths to talk about our hands, our feet, our tongues. And we ended with our discussion last week about the power of the tongue. Your tongue can be an instrument of unrighteousness. 
Your tongue can cut people down, put them in their place, tear them to shreds, or your tongue can be an instrument of righteousness. Your tongue can be used to lift people up, encourage people, help them through their afflictions, their problems, their issues. Every member of your body is to be turned over for God and his purposes. And that's the problem. That's the issue. Because you see, before we became believers, those same members learned to do things certain ways. They had certain habits. Your tongue, your eyes had certain habits. They looked, they said, they touched things that may have been okay, may have not been okay. And those habits still continue. And that's why we, as believers, need to continually take that member and give it to Christ. That's the process of sanctification that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Why would sin reign in your mortal body? Because before we became a believer, sin had dominion over us. More about that in just a moment. To make you obey its passions... The word passion is a very interesting word. What does the word passion mean? Come on, don't say a fruit. Huh? Hers says sinful desires. What does passion mean? A strong desire, a zeal towards something. In fact, it's interesting, I had to... uh, go on Netflix and rewatch the final scene of that great intellectual movie, Legally Blonde. (laughs) You may remember, or you may not, hopefully, when she shows up her first day in class, the professor says, in fact, the professor quotes Aristotle when he says that the law should be removed from passion. Hmm. And she, after she solved the great murder mystery and all this stuff at the very end, gets up to give the speech at her graduation and says, I think that's wrong. Passions are necessary because that's what drives us to do great things. But you see, that's a misunderstanding. If you read the Founding Fathers, if you read any philosopher from then back, They were scared to death of passions. Passions is what drove you to do irrational things. Yes, enthusiasm is a good thing. Zeal for doing what is right. But left to our own devices, our passions are going to lead us to do things that we ought not do. Now, philosophically, where does this come from? Well, we have this modern idea that we are all basically good. We are all good and wonderful, and so if I have a passion, it must be right. No. We are not born good. That was the lesson of two weeks ago. We are born into sin. 
and our passions, just like every other member of our body, has to be conformed to the will of God. Should we have zeal? Yes. Did Christ have zeal? Yes. He was zealous for the honor and glory of the Father. But his passion was not the standard. The will of God was the standard. And thus, his passion was conformed just like every other member of his body. We could talk about this at length. In fact, we will have a long discussion when we get to chapter 12 about the mind and how we conform it to the will of God. But that won't be for several, several months. <laughs> Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's an interesting idea. Present yourself. God, here I am. Question, how often do we need to do that? Is it something that we do the moment of salvation? We present ourselves to God, rah, rah, great. Well, we ought to do that. That's a good thing. I have this idea, though, that presenting ourselves to God is something that we have to do every day continually like listening to your conscience sometimes we listen to it and that's good sometimes we don't and that's bad and our conscience gets hardened so today we present ourselves to God today we say God use the members of my body use every piece of who I am and use it for your glory. Because the opposite of that is not doing your own thing in a great and wonderful fashion. The opposite of that is sin. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What does it mean to not be under law but to be under grace? To be under the law or to be under grace in this context refers to how, to what mechanism are you using to try to be saved? What is the covenant that you're operating under? There are two options, and we've had this long discussion. In fact, it started in chapter 2, and we had it for several, several chapters if I am under the law as a covenant for salvation, it means that I must follow the law in order to be saved. Not just some of the law, not just a piece of the law, not sometimes follow the law, not occasionally follow the law, but always follow the law from the day I'm born to the day I die perfectly, and then you're in. Do that, and you don't need to sit in the rest of this class. You pass the course you're done. In fact, why don't you just get up and leave if you meet that criteria? You can start at whatever. You can start yesterday for all I care, okay? We can't do that. We know we can't do that. 
everyone in here is old enough to know you can't do it. You know, you may be a naive teenager and think, yes, I'm perfect. (sighs) Ask your parents. (laughs) To be under the law as a covenant of salvation is an impossible task. Does that mean the law is messed up? No, we've had those discussions. We will continue to have those discussions in the book of Romans. The law is perfect. The law is holy. The law is right. The law reflects the character of God. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with you. And that was chapter 5. We were born into sin. We were born with the desire to do that which is contrary to the will of God. So if we are under the law, we have no hope. But Paul is saying we are not under the law, we are under grace. What does that mean? It means that because of God's favor toward us, not on our merit, not because we were better than our neighbor, not because we were on the top half of the bell curve, for no reason but the grace and mercy of God, God chose to save us. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and we're not going to talk about it until we get to chapter 9. God chose to save us. So we present ourselves to God. We present the members of our body to righteousness because sin is not winning the battle over us. Because sin draws its power from our desire to break the law. And as soon as we break the law, sin has us if we are under the covenant of the law. If I have to follow the law, the moment I don't follow the law, I'm guilty and sin has dominion over me. Sin can call the shots. But Paul is saying, don't live that way anymore because sin no longer has dominion over you. That's the introduction. What's the next logical question? Don't tell me you never thought of this. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Grace means never having to get in trouble again no matter what you do, right? Grace means I can sin all I want, have all the fun I want, do anything that anybody else wants to do, and guess what? There's no consequences to it. Hmm. Maybe. She said that's wrong. What's his answer? It's the same answer for the question that started the chapter. Heck no. I think the King James says, God forbid. If you talk to a Catholic who actually knows what they're talking about, one of their complaints about Protestants is this idea 
that since we are saved by grace alone, we can live any way we want and it doesn't matter. Okay, that sounds, I mean, how, how can you live that way, they say? That's got to be wrong. Now, I've heard the flip side of it, which is, to a Catholic, as long as you go to confession, you can do anything you want. And anyway, the argument goes both ways. Why can't we live any way we want if we know that grace is going to be sufficient to cover that sin? Why can't I just do my own thing and at the end of the day, Daddy will forgive me because Daddy loves me? Huh. Can we continue to live in sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Don't act like this is a silly question. If I could impress upon you the importance of this question, I would be real happy. Because it is my contention that we as believers oftentimes adopt the attitude that, yes, I shouldn't sin, but it's not that big a deal. You know, a little bit of sin around the edges you know, well, it just shows that I'm human. And we don't struggle with sin because we don't think the struggle is important. We don't think that not sinning is that big a deal that it's worth the trouble to fight each and every temptation that enters our lives. Yes, we don't want to sin, but you know, there's a good temptation coming in about an hour and a half. And, you know, I'm just looking forward to it. And that's the mentality that we get at times. Why? Because at the end of the day, God's going to forgive us. Therefore, it must not be that important. What the rest of this chapter is going to talk about is simply this. In fact, I can tell it to you. We can dismiss and we can go home. You are going to be a slave to something. We hate that word. You're going to be a slave to something. You're going to be a slave to sin, or you're going to be a slave to righteousness. If you are a slave to sin, it is going to produce death. It is going to produce death if you're a slave to righteousness it will produce sanctification and that will produce eternal life the observation that he's making is simply this if you are living your life as a slave to sin you are not a slave of righteousness We've had long discussions in here before, and I say it all the time because I think it is vitally important. There are certain activities, certain practices, certain sin that in the life of, belie of the believer are indicators that you might not be saved. Now, 
Do I believe that you can lose your salvation? No. Does this church believe you can lose your salvation? No. I've used the illustration before. You can take the cat and you can take the pig and you can throw them in the mud hole. And they're both going to be muddy. But the pig's going to like it. And the cat's not. We as believers will fall into sin. If you don't think so, you can read chapter 7 to get ready for next week's lesson. We as believers do fall into sin. But if sin is the pattern of your life, it is a red flag indicator that you may not be what you think you are. If you believe that because at some point in my life I walked down the aisle, I said something to the preacher, the preacher put me in a tub of water, he dunked me under the water, he said some nice things, therefore I can live my life any way I want, it is a red flag warning that you may not be what you think you are. Yes, Phil. Sure, go ahead. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, let's read the passage. Verse 15. What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. This word slave is interesting. Uh, some translations say servant. Some say bond servant. Uh, my opinion is we, try, we like the word servant more than we like the word slave. But the reality is if we think about it long enough, we don't like any of them. We have nice long discussions about what the word bond servant means. And there's actually an interesting connotation behind it the idea that i was born a slave into a household and at some point i am granted my freedom but i don't want my freedom because i have been treated well maybe i have a wife and children who are part of the household and so i present myself as a bond servant and that's you've heard this story before they put the your ear up and they put a hole through it and that shows that you are a slave but you're a slave who chose that position. And that all sounds good. I mean, I, that's perfectly valid and wonderful. But at the end of the day, someone else is calling the shots. That's what it means to be a slave, a bondservant. Somebody else has the power and the authority to tell you what to do. Let's stop right there. How many of you think that sounds grand and wonderful. We live in an age that emphasizes the individual, the autonomous nature of the individual, 
the fact that I am in control of my life and I can do what I want with my life. And at the end of the day, we sing with Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. The Bible doesn't know anything about that other than to call it sin. At the end of the day, there are two choices. You are going to be a slave to righteousness where God dictates the direction of your life or you're not. You're going to be a slave to unrighteousness. Now, it's interesting because you and I, we all know people who we look at and go, that person is a slave to sin. They've gone down a path, be it drugs, alcohol, pornography, sexual activity, pride, whatever it is, they've gone down that path, and we as an outsider can look at it and go, they're a slave to sin. It's a good thing that doesn't include me. The reality is, at the end of the day, there's only two choices. You're going to be a slave to sin, or you're going to be a slave to righteousness. Can we continue to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? If you continue to sin habitually as a pattern of life, as I said, and I'll keep saying it again, we as believers do sin, but if it is the pattern of your life, if I willfully go into the sin thinking, yee here I go, as a pattern of my life, it is an indicator that I am not dead, buried, and resurrected with Jesus Christ. It is an interesting discussion. I grew up in a Baptist church, a good Baptist church, a good Baptist church that proclaimed the gospel regularly. Accept the Lord Jesus Christ, come on down, and we'll dunk you in the tub of water. And that's good. That is good. But does that salvation have power in your life? Does it, in fact, produce righteousness? He who began the work will complete the work. Hmm. Does the salvation produce righteousness? If it doesn't, all that happened when you got dunked in that water is you got water in your ears. It had no effect. Hmm. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, slaves, servants, bondservant, present yourself as an obedient slave? Are you ready for this? Remember the comment that I had just a while ago? You need to wake up in the morning and present yourself and the members of your body as instruments of righteousness. You wake up in the morning, and you're going to present your body to something. Now, 
my contention is, is that you've presented your body to something for so long, you no longer think that you're presenting it. It just happens. To whatever you present yourselves as an obedient servant, that's whose servant you are. Now, it is interesting. We don't like this word servant, but this same word is used to talk about Christ himself. Do you know what passage it is? Some of you ought to remember it. Philippians chapter 2, talking about Christ. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. It is the discussion about Christ emptying himself of his divine attributes so that he could be like you and me. What did Christ say repeatedly? In his life, I came to do the will of him who sent me. If you looked at Christ's to-do list, there was one thing on that list. Do what God tells me to do. Now, lots of things came out of that. You know, when John the Baptist sent his disciples to see Jesus, to see if he was really the messiah and he says what does the prophet say raise the the dead heal the sick take care of this free this do that that was what he did but he did it all because he was an obedient slave to the father a servant he did the will of the father if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves you are slaves to the one you obey Pretty simple, okay? I present myself to obey you. I am a slave to the one that I obey. Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Here are the two paths. And the rest of the chapter is a discussion about these two paths. And it ends with one of the most frequently quoted scripture in all the Bible. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here we are at the beginning of this section, and there's only two choices. Pick one. But wait a minute. I like option three, or four, or five, or six, or seven, or dot, 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 dot. Nope. At the end of the day, there's only two choices. But thanks be to God, verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You were a slave to sin. You could not not sin. If you did your good things as an unbeliever, but did them in such a way that God did not get the glory, you were doing an act of unrighteousness. If you were breathing God's air and not giving him thanks for it, you were living a life of sin. If you were eating God's food, if you were drinking God's water, if you were living in God's world and refused to acknowledge him as such, you were living in sin. But you, 
he is telling the church at Rome, you have been set free from that. You were once slaves of sin, but you have become obedient from the heart. I like that phrase. Maybe it's because I have too many children and I've seen too much obedience that wasn't from the heart. Come help us pick up the leaves in the yard. Okay. I would like to say this was a long time ago, but this was yesterday. <laughs> if I have to. Were they obedient? Yeah, they did come out and pick up leaves and put them in the basket. Was it from the heart? Not even close. But how many of us have done that? I know God says I'm supposed to love you, but you really are a jerk. No, no, we wouldn't say that. Take that one off the table. I know I'm supposed to be faithful, but you know, I know that I'm supposed to, but you have become obedient from the heart. It is interesting because what does God say repeatedly throughout the scripture? The image that we have, the hardened heart is the unbelieving heart. But salvation brings a new heart, a heart that is sensitive to what God would have us to do, a heart that is alive. The goal is obedience from the heart. And here I'm going to jump a few verses ahead and make sure we do understand the word that I've used repeatedly since I started teaching, and that is the word sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we become what God has put in us. We have received the righteousness of Christ. Jump back to chapter 3 if you missed those lessons. We have received the righteousness of Christ, and because we have received it, we are declared righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. End of story, we are saved. But we don't die that day. God doesn't take us to heaven. God doesn't say, okay, you're in the club. Come on, I'm bringing you out of the world straight to heaven. It might be kind of fun. I mean, I wouldn't complain too much. But that's not what happens. So God declares us righteous on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, we wake up again. And you know what? That annoying coworker is still there. You know what? That horrible traffic on 287 is still there. And you know what? I react the same way that I reacted the day before. Why? It's habit. But I need to remember that the righteousness of Christ has been put in me. And I, through the grace of God, decide that I'm not going to treat that coworker the same way that I treated him the day before. Now, will I do it perfectly? No. Will I do it better? Yes. The next day, will I do it better? Ten years from now? Twenty years from now? Yes, it will be better. And that is the process of sanctification, where you and I 
work out in our everyday life what God has put into our lives. And there's a huge debate, and it shouldn't be a debate, but it was a debate even in the time the scriptures were being written. Okay, salvation is a work of God. Sanctification must be my job. Hmm. What did Paul tell the church at Galatia? Having begun by the Spirit, are you trying to accomplish it in your own power? Hmm. Well, that's obviously not the right answer. Okay, if salvation, if justification is a work of God alone, then sanctification is a work of God alone, and I'll sit here doing my own thing until he changes me in some miraculous way except for the fact that we're told to do certain things. We're told to put off unrighteousness. We are to put on. We are to do. We are to... So maybe that's not the right answer. Maybe the right answer is that salvation, justification, is an act of God alone working in us. But the process of sanctification is God and us working together to accomplish what God has put into our lives. If you think it's you alone doing it, you're going to have lots of frustration. That's the voice we're going to hear in chapter 7. You're going to feel it's all up to me and I can't do it. Woe is me. But if you think that it's all of God, you're going to be passive. And God does not call us to be passive. He calls us to put on the armor and go to the battle. He calls us to do something, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's the difference between sanctification and justification. We do not justify ourselves. There is no microscopic piece of merit that you earn that makes God want to save you other than his love looking at you a sinner and saying I will do that but in the same way we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and that is the process of sanctification I have obedience from the heart but you know I know what my heart looks like and sometimes it's not pretty. Yeah, but is it moving in the right direction? Here are the two paths. Obedience to righteousness that leads to sanctification, that leads to eternal life. Obedience to unrighteousness that produces more unrighteousness that leads to death. You will wake up tomorrow and think, Gosh, I wish I were more sanctified than I ought to be. In my book, that's actually a good indicator. Because if you woke up tomorrow and thought, wow, I'm a great guy, you've probably missed something. Ask your spouse or ask your coworker. Okay? Part of the process of sanctification is a continual realization of your sin and the righteousness of Christ. Huh, that's interesting. 
But thanks be to God, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. There's that word. It's interesting. He says, I'm speaking in human terms. You know, I, I, I want to know what the non-human terms are. But he obviously doesn't tell us because he doesn't think we can handle it. Part of me wonders whether he could handle it, but that's just you know, an opinion on my part. What are the human terms? The human terms of being a slave to this and a slave to that? The reality is the believer is going to do the things of God. Perfectly? No. Imperfectly? Yes. But they're going to move in the direction of sanctification. If you take a dead body a dead body and through a miraculous means bring it back to life that body is going to be doing the things that live bodies do it is going to breathe if it's not breathing it's not a live body it's going to eat if it doesn't eat it's not a live body it's going to drink it's going to do the things that live bodies do if we are brought alive through Christ, we will do the acts of righteousness. But those bad habits are still there. That's next week's lesson. Yes? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure I could make a great spiritual illustration of that. <laughs> if I were a medical doctor, and I could even pronounce the word, a fibrillation. John, are you going to talk about sin and sin? No. His, his, his question was, am I going to discuss a sin unto death? And the answer is no. I believe, we believe, as a church, that you cannot lose your salvation. Okay, When you are declared right before God, you are declared right before God. Okay, And God, who started the work, will continue the work, and he will finish the work that he set about for you to do. No matter how painful it is to you. Having said that, sometimes you can become such an embarrassment to the kingdom of God that God says, okay, you know, you're saved, but you're a pain in the butt and I'm taking you home. That's a loose translation. <laughs> there is a sin that God says, eh, okay, you're, going, you're, you're a believer, but you're going down the wrong path. Let's stop this. The other question was about the reality that 
the human heart, you know, most of the time, miraculously, does its thing. That's what human hearts do. But there are times that even the human heart skips a few beats, does a few things that it ought not do. That's why we put in the pacemaker, we put in this, we put in that. And yes, there is an analogy of the fact that spiritually, sometimes we need help. You know, it is interesting, this is kind of a side discussion, but it's not that much of a side discussion. As part of this, I'm my own person, I'm an individual, sometimes we as Christians begin to think it's just me and God. You know, me and God, God's telling me what to do, I'm doing what God tells me to do, shut up and go away. Well, we don't say that part because it would be impolite. But the reality is God calls us in communion. God calls us in communion because sometimes somebody else has to come beside you and kick you and say you're going the wrong direction. We need some help. We need the pacemaker. We need the something that says, I'm going to kick you back into the rhythm that you ought to be in. And that is the community that we live in. We will actually have a long discussion about this when we get to chapter 13. But suffice it to say, if there's not someone that's looking and saying, you know, I think you're going down the wrong path. You're a believer, but you still shouldn't be mad at that person for 25 years. And don't laugh, there are people who have been mad at people for 25 years for stupid reasons. Stupid in the eyes of an outsider. So, for just as you once presented your members to, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, what does sin lead to? More sin. Okay, I mean, this doesn't surprise us. We know this, right? We've seen people who sin, and all their sin produces is more sin. But, you know, they become a little bit hardened to it, and the new sin doesn't look as bad as the old sin, and so they just kind of keep going down the downward spiral. Leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Present your members to righteousness. Today, I'm going to decide that that hand is going to do an act of righteousness. And when that hand does an act of righteousness, what does that lead to? More righteousness. That hand becomes used to it develops the habit of doing acts of righteousness what do those cumulative acts of righteousness produce sanctification now if i stop and look at it under the microscope and i say well you know yesterday i did an act of righteousness and today i don't see a whole lot more sanctification it's like people who check the stock market every hour you're not supposed to do that okay It'll go up, it'll go down, and you're looking for a broad pattern. Trust God that God will complete what God said he would complete. Today, all you've got to do is decide whether that member is going to do the works of righteousness or not. That's your problem. He'll take care of the rest. Please. They're sinning. Her, her question is, wh- yeah, her question is, what about a Christian who refuses to forgive someone? Okay? 
The answer is you're sinning. Once again, how many habitual sins does it take to be a red flag warning that you're not really a believer? I don't know. I don't know. I can't judge the condition of your heart. I do know that there are parables and teachings of Christ that clearly state, clearly state, if you will not forgive your brother or sister, you ready for this? God will not forgive you. Now, wait a minute. That sounds like salvation by works. No, it's not. What it is is an indicator that you haven't fully grasped what God has done for you by offering forgiveness to you. And since you have not grasped that, you have not received the forgiveness that God is offering you. Once again, it's a red flag indicator. And here I've gotten to the best paragraph, and we are out of time. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have freed us from the dominion of sin. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us today would present our bodies, would present the members of our body to you for righteousness. Please direct us in how we are to grow in our righteousness and in our sanctification. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.